So, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, welcome to Tree of Life. See quite a few faces I've never seen before. Welcome. Um, I am not the normal person who is up here. Mike Manning is usually up here, um, but I get to have the privilege and honor to be before you today. This week, we are going to be starting our journey through the book of Ruth. We just finished up the book of Judges, and at the end of the book of Judges, we found out that the, it ended up in a pretty dark place. Uh, the key theme for that book was that in those days, Israel did what was right in their own eyes and according to their own understanding. This lifestyle led them down a dark path that resulted in a civil war and almost obliterated an, a, the entire tribe of Benjamin. Now we're going to switch gears to see that even during these times of darkness, all it takes is a little light to start things to get back on the correct path. Because it is during this time of the book of Judges that the book of Ruth takes place. It's been said of the book of Ruth that no deed is ignored, no act is forgotten. This is the lesson of the book of Ruth. The deeds of mortals can become part of the creator's plan. Ruth's story of triumph over adversity remains a historic teaching of man's potential for greatness. In other words, Ruth is a story of life according to faith. Faith tested, faith restored, and faith rewarded. The common teaching throughout the book of Ruth that we normally hear is about Ruth herself. But as we continue through here and we travel through this book, I'm actually going to take the spin of what's going on with Naomi. We don't hear a lot about this woman, and yet the shadows of what she's experiencing in her life are seen throughout this book. It is titled Ruth, but I wouldn't be opposed if it was titled Naomi as well, because it's her journey of faith that we're going to see as we go through. So from the onset, the big picture, we're still in the time frame of the judges. From the onset, we can see that the book of Ruth is going to be something special. First of all, its very name in itself, Ruth, or Root in the Hebrew. It's the only book in the entire Tanakh named after a Gentile. Okay. It's also one of two books in the entire Bible named after women. So we see from the very beginning, this is going to be a special book. I'd like to say we're going to power on through it and get through it in two teachings, but it's probably not going to happen because there's so much depth to this book. It's the story of faith or trusting of Naomi. In fact, the book's overarching theme can be summarized in this simple phrase. Sometimes living a life of faith or trusting can be hard and uncomfortable. The book of Ruth is about a journey that we all are partake, partaking in, including all of this journey's ups and downs, the good times and the bad. Ruth is a book that reminds us that there is always hope, even when we don't see it. The time frame of Ruth, Ruth takes place around 973 uh, BCE, before the Common Era, and it actually happens during the time of Ibzan. However, the writing of the book of Ruth will take place much later, because we'll find out at the end of the book of Ruth, the genealogy of Ruth is laid forth up to the time of David the king. So we know that it's during that time, more than likely, when this book was written and put to pen. So verse 1, it came to pass 
In the days when judges were governing, there was a famine in the land. A man went from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to dwell in the region of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So it came to pass. Anytime you hear this phrase in the Bible, it's basically Adonai saying, hey, buckle up. Something's about to take place. And what's about to take place here is a famine within the land of Israel. Now we know from God's promises from Deuteronomy chapter 28 that the times when famine are going to come into the land are because Israel is not in the proper place with Adonai. We know this is the time of the judges, the time when everyone was doing right in their own eyes. In fact, this time is actually going to be happening during the time of Ehud is when this famine is taking place. So this idea that the judges, whoops, went forward a little too fast, sorry about that, that the judges were governing. A more literal, tr literal translation of the Hebrew is the phrase, in the days of the judgment of the judges. So in other words, it was a time when the judges themselves were being judged by the people. This is confirmed for us in the Talmud in Tractate Barsa 15b. It was a generation that judged its judges. If the judge chastised someone by saying, take the splinter from between your teeth, he, that person would retort, take the beam from between your eyes. In other words, people refused to respect their leaders. If nothing else that we learn from this from the Talmud, we know that Yeshua was a studier of the rabbinic words because he would say the very same thing taking the beam from your own eye while trying to remove the speck from someone else's. But this gives us the idea that God has allowed the famine in the land at this time. And it's because of the people's failure to repent. Instead of them looking inward and rep repenting, they chose to cast blame on their very own deliverers. The judges would make a judgment call and they would question the very judgment call that was given forth. The idea of casting blame will be shown more as we continue, and we see in the life of Elimelech. Verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. So this is the husband. His wife na wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Mal Malon and Chilion. They were Ephraimites, or they're from the tribe of Ephraim, from the city of Bethlehem in Judah. And they came to the region of Moab and remained there. Elimelech means God is king. That's a great name. God is king. And this isn't lowercase g. This is, this is Adonai. The Adonai is king. And what's great about the Bible is we see that the names of individuals are often reflected in the desires of their parents towards their children. His parents sought to put God first in their life. Something was transpiring in their lives that when they had a son, they named him God is King. Something awesome had happened. Maybe a deliverance of greatness had just happened to where they named him God is King. However, we see this man with this great name will seek to put forth his own priorities in place of God's. We know this because they didn't simply visit to acquire grain to feed themselves. This isn't an issue of Jacob sending down his sons to Egypt to get grain and then come back to the land. The, he is taking his entire family and leaving the land of Israel to go to the land of Moab. He had an inheritance there. Had they trusted in God, he may have provided for them. 
But we see that they're actually going to go to this land of Moab, of foreigners, and they're going to dwell there. They will establish a homestead. And they'll be there long enough that his sons will take foreign wives to themselves. Let's make it clear that for the Israelites, according to Deuteronomy, to be kicked out and removed from their land is a punishment. So then what is it when an Israelite chooses to leave his land on his own? What is it when we as a believer choose to walk away from Adonai on our own? It's rebellion. Now, his wife's name was Naomi. Naomi in Hebrew, and it means pleasant. It means pleasant. Now, we're not privy to her life before these events in the book of Ruth take place, but as we continue through this story, the author makes sure that her inner beauty is made abundantly clear to us. It's the background story that's happening in the book of Ruth here. For her life is one that reflects pleasantness. The first thing we see is that she follows her husband's lead. Though it may not have been the best of choices to make, he followed, she follows him into this land of the Moabites. We're going to see that she's going to leave a great impression on her daughters-in-law. For those of you who are mothers-in-law, you know how difficult that can be sometimes. And when given the opportunity, she will, re, she will actually reevaluate her life choices, repent and follow God. Tremendous beauty. That's why I believe this book of Ruth is really the story of the faith of Naomi played out to its fullest. Continuing on in verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, had died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. And there, there they dwelt about ten years. Then her two sons, Malhon and Kilion, also died. So the woman was left without her children and her husband. It's here in verse 4 that we are introduced for the first time to the main protagonist of our story, Ruth. In Hebrew, it's Ruth. Ruth means friendship. Ruth is a Moabitist. So she's a Gentile living in her Gentile land. The Midrash tells us that she, along with her sister Orpah, the other woman, were daughters of King Eglon of Moab. Now you'll remember this King Eglon, he was the fat one. The one that Ehud ran through because he was left-handed with a, with a sword and it went all the way up to the hilt and he just left the sword inside of his fat. So this is a royal wedding, if we can say that. And it shows us that Elimelech was either one of two things. He was a man of high standing amongst the children of Israel, which is why he was allowed to settle in the land of Moab. Because remember, the Moabites during the time of Ehud were oppressing the children of Israel. Why would you let your enemy live amongst you unless you're in a high stately position? Or the time frame in which this happens Ehud has already judged the, judged the children of Israel, and King Eglon has already put, been put to death. Which would mean that after the, the defeat of this King Eglon, their status as their family would have been reduced to the point where they would be forced to marry poor refugees like that had come into their land. 
Either one, the story really doesn't change. But it gives an interesting background because later on we're going to see if they are of royal descent and if they are still of high standings within their society, that Ruth will abandon this all. And if they're not, if they're marrying the lowest of the low because they have no choices, Ruth will also abandon this low standard for something much greater in the end. Verse 6. Now Naomi got up, along with her daughters-in-law, to return from the region of Moab. Because in the region of Moab, she had heard that Adonai had taken note of his people and, that, and given them food. So she left the place where she was, along with her two daughters-in-law, and they started out on the road to return to the land of Judah. At this point, it's important for us to understand that there is a difference between faith, or trusting, and reason. So we have to ask this question, is Naomi acting upon faith or her own understanding? She's heard that there's now grain in the land of Israel, and now she's going back. But at the same time, she's lost everything. So is, is she moving in faith, in trusting Adonai, or is she moving in her own reason, logic, and understanding? The definition of reason goes as follows. Reason is the action of thinking about something in a logical, sensible way. Pretty straightforward. I can make it work. I don't need any special spiritual understanding. A plus B equals C. That's wrong. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. There, that's right, right there. Two plus two equals four. Those are right common logical things to come to the conclusion to. However, faith is complete trust and confidence in something or someone which is based on spiritual understanding rather than logical proofs. The Bible supports this definition. We see in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of realities not seen. This is why the Stearns translation in the Complete Jewish Bible uses the word trusting instead of faith. And I love that. Because we hear this word faith thrown around so glibly all the time. Oh, you got to have faith. Oh, I have the faith of a mustard seed. And Stearns would turn and say, you know what? I think we need to redefine this a little bit better. Because everyone throws around this word faith, but they don't understand that faith is complete and utter trusting in the creator of the universe. Our trusting in God is based upon who he is and is what he stands for, not what we see with our physical eyes. So the answer to the question, is Naomi moving in faith or in reason, is yes. I love those types of answers because it's both. She has heard with her ears that there's grain back in Israel, so why wouldn't she go back? But she's also trusting, because remember, she's lost it all. And in those times, if you lose it all as a woman, you're in deep trouble. It's not like you can just walk down the road and get a job at McDonald's and start over again. There's a certain amount of trust that needs to go into having a husband. So she's walking out in faith because she doesn't know what's about to happen. No clue. But she figures, hey, reasonably speaking, logically speaking, what can I lose? So Naomi said to her two daughters in verse 8, Go, return each of you to your mother's house, 
And may Adonai show you the same kindness that you have shown to the dead and to me. May Adonai grant you that you find rest, each of you in the house of her own husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept loudly. No, they said to her, we will return with you to your people. And now Naomi said, go back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Do I have more sons in my womb who could become your husbands? Obviously, she's pretty old. No, she doesn't have anything left to give them. She's like, there's nothing here. I've got enough faith for myself to move out, but I, I, I don't have enough to carry you along. I've got nothing for you. Go home, my daughters. I am too old to have a husband. Even if I were to say that there was hope for me and I could get married tonight and then bear sons, would you wait for them to grow up? Would you therefore hold off getting married? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you. For the hand of Adonai has gone out against me. So we see that she is in a unique place in life. She feels bitterness. She feels anger. She feels jaded. You know, this reminds me so much of as we come into this stage of life within Messianic Judaism, a lot of us, I think, can attest to the fact that we came in bitter. We came in jaded. You know, we felt wronged maybe a little bit. But, you know, those times have to move on. And that's what, that's what Naomi is going to show us. You know, were we jaded for a reason? Yes. Should we remain in that jaded state? Absolutely not. Because it will become poison to us. This word bitter here is marar. It means to be bitter. Naomi had lost everything. Some might say that she had the right to be bitter toward life. She lost her homeland the first time. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And she lost absolutely any means in which to support herself. But you see, there's a fine line between mourning of personal loss and becoming bitter. Well, we see that Naomi has crossed this line. And she's seeking a fresh start. This reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Go ahead, turn with me to the book of Luke. One of the other books in the Bible that's actually named after a Gentile. The book of Luke in the Brit Hadashah, chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 11 through 20. You know, and I can't, as you turn there, I can't help but think that maybe our Messiah Yeshua had the story of Ruth on his mind when he gave this example of repentance. You know, as a reminder, this is the point in Yeshua's ministry when the religious leaders were questioning his taking time to spend with the riffraff, with the tax collectors and the sinners. How can he eat with the tax collectors and sinners if he's such a spiritual, holy man? And Yeshua responds to them, and he says this. A certain man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of property that comes to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, not many days later, the younger son gathered everything and traveled to a far country. And there he squandered his inheritance on wild living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine came against that country, and he began to be in need. This sounds exactly like the book of Ruth, doesn't it? It's interesting. So he went, and he joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, this person sent him into the fields to feed pigs. 
And he was longing to fill up on the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one was giving him any. Now, if you've ever seen carob pods, um, they make a mess. They really do. They're, they're really interesting. They're like long little bean-looking things, and they're green. And when they ripen, they turn dark brown, and they fall. Um, in the house that we previously lived in, there was a school down the road that had like six trees that lined the sidewalk that were carob trees. Beautiful, tall trees, beautiful trees. But when these things went to fruit, man, they made a mess. Like these carob pods were everywhere, and they stained everything. The sidewalk was a mess. It was just a mess. So we can see that these farmers at this time who are raising pigs, they're not raising carob trees, but yet they have carob trees on their property, are taking these excess carob pods and feeding them to the pigs. This is the state that this prodigal son is in, is that he's to the point where he's bringing these carob pods and feeding them to these pigs. And we're not told where these pods come from. Now, they could be being used to make sweetener, and it could be the leftovers from that, or it could be those that had just been swept off off the ground. It just gives us a deeper understanding that he's in such a bad place that he's willing to eat pig food, the garbage that is swept off the ground. He's reached that fine line between mourning personal loss and bitterness, just like Naomi. But then this man came to his senses. Verse 17. He said, how many of my father's hired workers have food overflowing, but here I am dying of hunger. I know what I'll do. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your presence. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he got up and went to his own father. This is literally the book of Ruth. I love this parallel here. Naomi has come to her senses. She's woken up. She's had a hard life. She's crossed that line. She's in bitterness now. She's jaded. But she's coming to her senses. Back into our story of Ruth. We now begin the testimony of Naomi. Verse 14 again. They broke into loud weeping, Naomi and her uh, daughters-in-law. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Return along with your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Do not plead with me to abandon you, to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried." What an awesome testimony on the behalf of Ruth, a Gentile. This is the same testimony that we as Gentiles come into and understand when we join the community of Israel as a whole. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. That is the declaration. Your Moedim will be my Moedim. Your Torah will be my Torah. So even in the midst of her bitterness, the previous testimony of Naomi and her God had an impact on Ruth. Naomi was in a dark, bitter place. And yet the testimony she had before she became bitter and jaded left such an impression on Ruth that Ruth now wants to worship the God she worships and go back with her to the land where she comes from. Now, Scripture has a lot to say about the importance of living a life full, uh, a life full of testimony to God. Luke chapter 8, verse 39 says... 
And this is Yeshua when he tells the, the man he talks about or heals a man who's possessed by a legion of demons. He says to the man, return to your home and describe all that God and describe all that God has done for you. So the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole town all that Yeshua had done for him. Our testimonies are strong. The things that happen in life, the things that God has done for us. Acts chapter 4, verse 33, is the disciples, after being filled with the Ruach, with great power and the emissaries, were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and abundant favor was upon them. Their testimony was great. We follow that up in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, speaking of the time, the Achari Chayamim, the end of days those who are being persecuted by the man of sin. It says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even in the face of death. Our testimonies have power. You know, maybe at some point, even when we come to a point where we feel like we're not in the spot with God where we were before, our testimonies from the past are not null and void. They still have an impact on the life of other people. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that because sometimes we get down and we're beaten down and downtreaded. We're in that valley. You know, we're not on that mountaintop experience. And yet, Ed and I would say, you know what? Your testimony hasn't gone away. Your testimony isn't put to shame. The good things that you've done do not go away and evaporate when you do something wrong. So Ruth continues on, may Adonai deal with me and worse if anything but death comes between me and you. When she saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she no longer spoke to Ruth about it. So the two of them went on until they arrived in Bethlehem. As we begin to close our time together here, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 15. Hebrews, or if you have the complete Jewish Bible, that'll be Messianic Jews. Verse 7. Therefore, just as the Ruach HaKodesh says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, there your fathers put me to the test, though they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation, and I said, they always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day by day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we become partners of Messiah. If we hold our original conviction firm until the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the first part of the book of Ruth, we see that Naomi is going through a, a trying time of life. However, her interaction with Ruth shows that no matter what struggles we are currently facing in life, our previous testimonies to the Creator are not in vain. It's never too late to turn back to the path that God has for us, no matter how far we think we've fallen from it, no matter how bitter life feels. Today is the day of salvation, and may we never turn a deaf ear to his calling. The story will continue on through the book of Ruth. We see Ruth's faith or trusting in God being tested. We see her coming to repentance. This is that sin cycle that we went through in the book of Judges. It's coming all around 
full circle. She's coming to repentance. She's getting ready to go back. And at the point of her going back and trusting in God is when we really start to see him move in her life. It's the same thing that happens with us. There are times when we fall into dark places. We think we've fallen too far away from God. How could we ever come back to him? But he would say, and his testimony would be, it's never too late. Don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness. Shabbat shalom.